Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of, well, actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. The UFC returned to Mexico this past Saturday, and as you probably know by now, things came to a rather anticlimactic end. Just 15 seconds into the night's main event, a night poke led to a no contest, and all hell broke loose in the arena. Bottles were thrown, insults were hurled, and apparently Jeremy Stevens, yes, the same Jeremy Stevens who's fought other men in the cage a total of 45 times, is now being called a quitter. Long story short, Stevens suffered a night poke and couldn't continue his fight with Yeri Rodriguez. Never mind that Stevens clearly couldn't open his left eye. Or that it was a doctor who decided he was done after his five-minute recovery window was over. Or that this is his literal job and that he's been doing it since 2005. None of it mattered when it came time for the validity of his injury to be questioned. It was the wrong guy that he was complaining about, one Twitter user said. You should give Jeremy a suspension for faking injuries, said another one. And these are just some of the first tweets that show up when you look at the replies to the UFC's official reaction on the matter, which, by the way, was a sad emoji. I didn't want to engage, I swear. I was on vacation, in freaking Europe, for my birthday, for God's sakes. And, much to the internet's credit, there were already plenty of reasonable people combating the silly narratives. I didn't have to add to the choir, but I couldn't help it. I still found myself defending Stevens in the type of conversation I admit I was not expecting to still be having in 2019. But then again, how many of those conversations don't we have on a regular basis? Who among us hasn't stared at their computer screen thinking, why do I keep having the same dialogue? How is this still a thing? And this, friends, is the theme to this week's episode, the one I am calling Things we shouldn't even be discussing in 2019, and yet, here we are. We'll begin with the event that inspired this entire episode. Item number one, calling professional cage fighters cowards. As we've covered, Stevens Matt Rodriguez in the headliner of this past Saturday's UFC on ESPN Plus 17 event. He was already 30 fights into his UFC career going into it, and even 15-15 in terms of wins and losses. The list of people he's fought in the octagon includes, and I'm just going to throw a few names here, Jose Aldo, Gilbert Melendez, Frankie Edgar, Anthony Pettis, Donald Cerrone, I could go on. Then he accepts his five-round headliner in Mexico City, which meant signing up to fight not only Rodriguez, but the high altitude and a hostile crowd, which, as we know, proved to be particularly and physically hostile that night. So Steven signs on the dotted line, puts in the training, and of course, the money into a full fight camp. He gets on a plane, arrives in Mexico, makes the featherweight limit, gets to the cage, and in 15 seconds in, he decides, nah, I want out. I can't continue. For what reasons exactly? To hope for a DQ win? I mean, this is a serious question that I'm asking right now. Where's the logic? A few days have gone by and Stevens has come out explaining that he actually got swiped in both eyes, but the left took most of the damage. It wasn't anything long-lasting though, which is why he looks very much okay. But sure enough, because he didn't look completely wrecked when he talked to Ariel Hawani on Monday, here is a small sampling of the comments under the ESPN tweet uh, that had his interview clip. This guy, Jeremy, you can't run off like a hard dude and cry because of a night poke. Seriously, your tough guy act is lame. 
And then another tweet. Your eye looks good, you flop. Another tweet. Bro, you're a coward. And then the last one I'm going to read. It's actually almost eloquent. Jeremy was totally at a disadvantage. Yeah, you prepared himself better than him. The whole public was against him and he didn't know how to lead with the height of Mexico City. He didn't want to continue. He is a damn coward. I mean, props for the last guy for trying to inject some logic into his thinking, but Stevens knew he was going to go to Mexico City. And how could he tell Rodriguez who had prepared better than him in just those 15 seconds? Some may ask, but how do you know he didn't quit? I don't. I also don't know that I'm not Jim Carrey in The Truman Show and that my life isn't a big depressing simulation. But I live with the proof that I have. And seriously, I'll be happy to get a reasonable explanation that will prove me wrong, both about Stevens and the simulation. Granted, Rodriguez is himself fueling that narrative because he, well, he didn't flat out say it, but he did imply something about Stevens maybe being able to continue But this was, you know, his home headliner. He had his emotional investment in the situation. And as it turns out, it was his stock that seems to have suffered the most, both with with his post-fight reaction and the scuffle that broke out in the hotel between the two later on. Other than Rodriguez, the only other fighter, at least that I saw questioning Stevens, was Paulo Costa. And honestly, I don't know why he would do that either. But other than those two, most people saying those things about Steven, most people questioning his injury... They were non-fighters, and I'm going to go ahead and guess. It's a really wild guess here, but I'm thinking they were not doctors either. It's just weird to me that people who have never fought professionally and who have no idea what it's like to go through an entire fight camp just to get in the cage where they will physically confront another person. I don't get how these people feel like it's their place to judge. And the fact that they would question the toughness of any fighter, really, but even more so, a guy who's as battle-tested as Stevens makes me wonder, who's safe? If Jeremy freaking Stevens is a wuss in the eyes of at Connor Fenn 247, who the fuck isn't? When I tweeted about it, most replies I got agreed with me, but a couple of people tried to use Czech Congo as a counter. Congo recently got a new contest in his own title fight with Ryan Bader at Bellator, also due to an eye poke. But in his case, the footage was more, quote-unquote, incriminating. Again, though, I wonder about logic. Congo stood more to gain, I guess, with the DQ because Bader was the champ. But still, why would an experienced fighter who trains for this get up there, decide he wants out, and angle for this type of win? which is essentially a weird gamble too. It's just a strange concept altogether. Now, maybe I'm a closeted idealist. Maybe, and this is one thing I have never heard from anyone before, but maybe I do see the world through rose-colored glasses. But no fighter, to my knowledge, takes a fight that they don't think they can win. Even when they know it's you know, kind of a long shot because it's either short notice or they had a rough weight cut or whatever, they can usually see a way. And I've never heard in my life of a fighter who enjoyed a DQ win. As we know, the difference between a loss and a win isn't merely symbolic. Fighters get the show money and the win money that are title shots and career advancements on the line. But if money was all that was moving these guys, A, why aren't more people professional cage fighters? And B, they'd probably be doing something else because becoming rich as a fighter is one long play. But I'll get to that in a bit. For now, we move on to our second item. And I want you to picture me saying this one like that weird, deformed SpongeBob meme. How much did they pay you to throw the fight? 
Seriously, there are still people out there thinking that fighters take dives in the UFC. I don't know if that's more of a Brazilian thing. We do love going full conspiracy theory with our sports. But yeah, it happens. It just did, in fact, when Jessica Andrade lost the strawweight belt to Wiley Zhang. It got bad enough that Andrade, that gentle, happy, golden retriever of a person, had to go online and address the criticism. And a lot of it was people saying that she sold her title, basically. Jose Aldo got some of that too when he lost his title to McGregor. And honestly, I have a tough time even addressing this one because if you want to believe in a conspiracy theory, you can just ask me for definitive proof and I won't be able to provide it. And we're back to the whole Truman Show situation. I mean, there are people who believe that the world is flat and that vaccines cause autism and that the market will regulate itself. But really, to me, it boils down to logic again. There's an entire structure, the sheer amount of work that would go into hiding something like this, like something that would jeopardize the entire credibility of the UFC. And we've seen some of the biggest stars lose and fuck up and cost the company a lot of money. If they had that type of power, why wouldn't they use it more often? I just really don't see it. Yet again, I am open to reasonable explanations that will prove me wrong. About this, by the way, not the flat earth. I'm very much done with that one. Now, moving on to item number three. That fight was so close, it should have been a split decision. This one, yeah, it just it just shows such a deep lack of understanding of the basics and of math, really. So let's just go over how an MMA fight is usually scored. There are three judges. Each of them gives each round of each fight a score. After the fight is over, the numbers on each scorecard are added up and the scorecards are read. If two scorecards say one fighter won, while the other scorecard disagrees, we have a split decision. So basically, a split scorecard reflects a close fight because it means it was close enough that the judges would disagree. But that is an entirely different thing than saying that a close fight should have been a split decision, as if that's some type of consolation prize. Because this would imply that the combination of scores is deliberate. Do people think that the judges just huddle together after a fight and go, yeah, that was pretty close, so let's change one of ours so it's a split. It's just not a logical way of thinking. It's not how basic math works. And that takes us into the fourth item in today's list of conversations that we shouldn't be having in 2019. And yet, here we are. What do you mean Fighter X won this very close fight against Fighter Y? That is a robbery. You can't see my face now, but my eyes have rolled so hard that I can see the back of my head right now. This is one of those things that get really hard to debate when people seem so completely unwilling to acknowledge new ones. I just, I mean, look, I, I get disagreeing with scoring. We've all been there. Judges are people. They make mistakes, some more so than others. And yeah, every now and then you get a result that seems downright wacky. But those instances are really not that common, or at least not as common as the shouts of robbery online would make it seem. The math just doesn't really add up there. I'll give you a recent example. Adam Rebozo versus Paul Felder at, at USC 242. There was one downright bizarre score there, a 30-27 for Felder. But the end result itself wasn't bizarre. Felder won in a close fight that could have reasonably gone to Barbosa. I can understand Barbosa being upset, he was the one fighting up there and the one directly affected by the result. And I had personally scored it his way. But then I could also see why somebody else wouldn't. 
because these things can absolutely coexist. If you're wondering whether to throw a fit or not about a result, I'll suggest an exercise. Look around your timeline. There are other people, whether it's media, fighters, fans, and you notice in close fights, they'll often disagree. So a very simple route to take there is thinking, well, this is a person who also watches the sport and who also knows what they're looking and they feel this way. This other person with similar experiences sees it differently. Then you ask yourself, what does it all mean? Spoiler, it means it's fucking subjective. Because despite our best attempts to make the process as objective as possible, scoring is still a human activity. And when you are so absolutely certain that your subjective view is so good, so dead on, that any other view is just a robbery, well, let's just say I wouldn't mind borrowing some of that self-esteem of yours. Now for our fifth item, something a little more serious. Fighter pay, or let's support the billionaires and think it's the fighters that are getting a little greedy. When it comes to UFC fighter pay specifically, we were able to sort of plead ignorance for a long time because the numbers were just so murky. But things have changed. Obviously, it's not like everything's out in the open, but the antitrust lawsuit and the UFC sale in 2016 have given us a better glimpse into the company's numbers. And if you're a dum-dum like me who struggles with legal documents or numbers and graphs or anything that requires a decent attention span, I recommend that you read the multiple stories that John Nash has written about it for Bloody Elbow. The gist of it, though, is that it seems like the UFC is invested in making sure their fighters don't get any more than 20% of their revenue. And if you compare that to leagues like the NBA, where players get around 50%, or the NFL, where that percentage hovers around 48%, that is not great. I think I'm not saying anything controversial here when I say that this is a dangerous career that not only demands a lot from these people physically and mentally, but that is also very short. And if their work is making big money, it's only fair that they also make big money. Right? Still... Try discussing fighter pay on social media. Seriously, just try it. The arguments will go anywhere from if they're not happy, they should just go fight somewhere else. Or as my friend Alexander Lee from MMA Fighting recently found out, and this is an actual tweet that he received, by the way. Fighters don't care how much you get paid, and yet you are incredibly concerned how much they get paid. Pause. Pause for us to absorb that. I won't even address the second one because it's clearly coming from a person who doesn't understand what a journalist is or what we do. But the first one, dude, look around the MMA landscape. It is not as simple as going somewhere else. Now, fighter pay is a complex issue and it deserves its own podcast. Hell, it deserves its own series of podcasts. I'm not equipped to discuss it here alone in just a few seconds. But when a person complains about discussions around fighter pay in this day and age, I see two things, either lack of compassion or lack of awareness. And this lack of awareness is becoming less and less justifiable in 2019 with all the information that we currently have available. My colleague Ben Folks recently wrote something interesting about that for The Athletic, focusing on UFC President Dana White's response to somebody calling him cheap and asking about fighter pay during a Twitter Q&A. Here's what White said, quote, first of all, you're a dick. Let's start there. And you don't know what fighters get paid. Everybody wants more money. Everybody needs more money. That's always going to be an issue, end quote. And what Ben correctly pointed out there is that this was 
an answer that's straight out of 2008. <laughs> the UFC has changed. What we know about the UFC has changed. And also the world and the way we talk about the world has changed. Now we have a very wealthy man who's the voice of a very wealthy company talking about the issue of people wanting more money. Can you kind of spot the disconnect there? Sure, there are rich fighters, but how many can you think of? When you think of a regular UFC card, how many of those people do you think can afford to go through a period of inactivity due to a torn ligament or a broken jaw? Sure, the UFC pays for medical care in specific situations, but how many of these fighters can afford insurance to keep their bodies intact throughout their fight camps? If you can't see the issue with that, I guess we just view the world in a very different light. And I wonder if you want to keep listening to this podcast at all, because I am very much what one would consider a leftist snowflake, a social justice warrior, the type of person, in fact, who would talk about this next item, which is less about outdated conversations than it is about the framework in which these conversations still take place. Now, hold on to your well actuallys, because I am talking about drum roll the sexist and homophobic discourses that rear their ugly heads all too often. I'm going to go ahead and suggest an exercise that might spoil your dinner. Go into any YouTube video featuring an interview with a female fighter. Just do it. Just pick one randomly. Now read the general tone of the comments. You see a lot of them revolve around their looks. That is both in a positive and a negative way. And I'm putting both words in quotes here because I think that sucks either way. It is the way of the world, unfortunately. We are very heavily judged by how we look, particularly as women. And it seems like no matter the level of athletic achievement we reach, that's still part of the conversation. See Serena freaking Williams and the fact she can't even wear her own cat suit in peace. Often, you see guys really eager to point out how hot a certain fighter is, because I guess that's what they think it's worth pointing out about these complex humans who happen to be talking about many things, including their jobs performing at the highest level of their sport. And then you see the insults, often looking to offend female fighters by calling them dudes. I touched on this on my very first episode when I talked about the attacks on Chris Cyborg, but that goes really for any fighter who doesn't really meet this completely unrealistic idea of feminine beauty that we enforce as a society. And it's still so prevalent. I don't want to name names because these are often very hurtful remarks and I don't want to keep repeating them. But like I said, it's very much there. Um, you can just see that for yourself. And I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here, but it's not just the fence. Sexist vocabulary is everywhere, and it's harmful even in situations that don't necessarily look that way at first sight. Remember that Bellator press conference when Chael Sonnen called a female reporter sweet potato in front of everyone? It might not seem like a big deal, but being a woman in a male-dominated field means having to fight tooth and nail for respect all the time. And being treated in a condescending manner like that, in a world that is so eager to not take you seriously, can really hurt your chances of getting your peers to look at you as an equal. Same when Dana White calls female reporters honey. It's not meant to be a bad thing. And I know some people think I sound like a feminist killjoy when I say this, but guess what? I am a feminist killjoy. And I say that this is sneakily harmful behavior because, again, you're treating women differently than you're treating the men in an environment that's already so good at creating those divisions. And then when it comes to the men... 
We often hear it, right? The go-to insult, the easiest and most effective way of putting another male fighter down, calling them a bitch or its most symbolic variation, a pussy, or saying that they hit like girls or that they cry like ladies. Again, I get that this doesn't seem like that big of a deal for a lot of people, but these men are working alongside a lot of women that sweat, bleed, and fight just as hard as they do. And when they equate the female existence with weakness, they are, albeit mostly inadvertently, letting these female colleagues down. This was actually supposed to be the end of today's episode, but just as I was wrapping it up, I saw there was a video of the scuffle that broke out between Stevens and Rodriguez in the lobby of their hotel after Saturday's fight. Sure enough, the word pussy was thrown around, but there was also another very ugly term used by both men, a homophobic slur that we've heard all too often in MMA already. I'm not going to repeat it because I find it way too offensive, but I'm sure you can guess it. We hear it every few months, usually when tempers flare. Sometimes we get an apology, sometimes we don't, but we just keep hearing it, don't we? I'm not saying that people say these things specifically to be sexist or to be prejudiced or that they are misogynist or homophobic in nature. I mean, I constantly catch myself using harmful vocabulary that I don't realize is harmful until somebody points it out. But that's the beauty of the passing of time. We get to develop perspective and to have conversations that hopefully lead us to a more equal and welcoming environment. Here's to hoping that we can at least have these conversations in MMA. See, I did warn you that I was going into social justice warrior snowflake territory here. And I must warn you again, this is going to happen in plenty of episodes moving forward. Sorry, not sorry. For this week, though, that is it. Before I go, I gotta say, my wonderful colleagues at The Athletic helped me put this list together. This is both my way of thanking them and of letting you know that if you have a problem, please share it with them as well. There was a lot that I had to leave out, of course, or I had to keep you guys here for hours on end. But, as usual, feel free to reach out if you think I missed something important, if you think I'm way off, or if you're just lonely and want somebody to talk to. Go ahead, it's not like I have many real-life friends anyway. And if we don't get to talk online before that, I'll see you again next week for more MMA and other stuff. <laughs>